0: Whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid?
1: Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question that I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do?
0: Uh, my name is Gideon Rosen. I am a professor of philosophy at Princeton University. I have been doing philosophy teaching philosophy for over 25 years now and i've done different things i think of myself as um a sort of philosophical dilettante i've worked a little bit on lots of things some of my work is in abstract abstruse metaphysics philosophy of mathematics uh and related topics um but more recently i've been focused In addition, on moral philosophy and problems that are a little closer to human life, uh, including questions about the conditions under which human beings are free and morally responsible for what they do, uh, questions which occasionally um, have a real bearing on uh, how we might think about and conduct the lives we actually lead, so from the abstract
1: to the moderately concrete. So, you say dilettante rather than a generalist. I mean, do you feel like these are separate interests or does it all hang together? It doesn't hang together especially well. Um, everything is continuous
0: with everything else at a certain abstract level. But my interests in theoretical philosophy, they hang together. They're clustered around a set of questions about the nature of reality and our access to the reality that we can know. I spent a lot of time doing that kind of thing and then thought I should do something completely different and started teaching classes in moral philosophy and free will and moral responsibility and things like that, mainly because I thought those topics were different enough from the things I'd worked on before that they would give me a sort of fresh start. And they did. There there are remote connections and maybe some of them will come up as we talk. But uh, I say dilettante because a real generalist would be an expert expert in many areas. Philosophy has become so specialized that it's hard to be a real expert in any one thing, much less an expert in many things. So I indulge myself by sounding off on topics where I'm not, in some cases anyway, a properly credentialed expert. So that's what I meant by calling myself a dilettante.
1: I see. Well, I, you you may be being uh, unduly modest, but I also think there's a kind of issue here about the shape of philosophy that we, we may or may not get back to depending on whether the other questions Leaders to it. So let's start with the first question and see if this uh, where, the, where this goes. So my inspiration is Iris Murdoch. Uh, at the beginning of the podcast, we hear her telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So would you say your temperament influences your philosophical work? And if so, how? I've been
0: thinking quite a lot about this uh, since you let me in on the structure of the podcast? And I think the answer is yes, in a complicated sort of way. So if I had to describe my temperament, I would say I'm a sort of placid type. I'm always moderately happy and rarely anything but moderately happy. Um, I don't get very excited about things. I don't worry a lot about things. Um, I'm not driven by anxiety or passion all that much. I am driven by a sort of moderate curiosity that's how i would describe my intellectual temperament and to some extent my emotional temperament and when i think about my instincts in philosophy some people are in philosophy because they think it holds out the possibility of some kind of radical transformation of one's outlook on life that philosophy is a means by which we get at something deep and transformative Um, it's the way we get at the mysteries that lie beneath The surface. And I've never thought of philosophy as holding out the prospect of that kind of uh, transformative understanding. I'm sort of suspicious of depth in philosophy, suspicious of mystery in general. I think that this is not a hard and fast thing, but I think that in general, philosophy tends to leave everything where it was, except that you come out the other side with a deeper, more articulate, more clear headed view of the worldview you started out with. So my suspicion of mystery in philosophy, I do think is continuous with my temperament, which is to be um, sort of allergic to or uninterested in big surprises, big surprises of uh, an emotionally or intellectually transformative sort. That's the way it normally goes. I'm a sort of a shallow philosopher, I think in some respects though I do think there is also in me something that wishes it were otherwise. If I thought there were deep mysteries to, to be to be discovered, that's the business I'd be in. It's just that I've been uh, I'm sort of beaten down by experience um, every time I think that philosophy is getting close to something truly deep and truly wonderful, something that really would undermine and reorient the sort of bourgeois, middle-class, late capitalist view of the world that I bring to things, uh, it turns out not to be there. That is, common sense reasserts itself over deep philosophy. So I think there's something else in my temperament that wishes there were big surprises and is somewhat disappointed to find there aren't, but I've become so used to the disappointment that it's now baked in.
1: Well, there's a question, I suppose, about what generates the sort of passion and drive required to do philosophy, or I mean, in general, academic life is relentless and requires a lot of concentration and a, a lot of hard work. What, what, what motivates you if it's not a kind of passion to discover the, the mysterious truths?
0: I would say there is a kind of intellectual curiosity. I want to know, and really do want to know, the best way of saying the things I believe anyway, the best way of knitting the things I believe anyway together into a more coherent coherent view of things, the best way of resisting radical, skeptical challenges to the things I'm disposed to believe anyway. It's not as if philosophy doesn't throw up challenges to my placid worldview. It's just that my impulse is to resist those challenges. And there's quite a lot of intellectual work that goes into resisting those challenges. I mean, just to take one sort of example and this is the kind of thing that I worked on mostly early in my career, you wake up having been taught ordinary mathematics in school and you find yourself thoroughly persuaded that the mathematics you learned in school is correct. The mathematics you learned in school tells you that there are solutions to equations, there are functions with various properties, there are numbers and sets and topological spaces and a whole range of things, and then you reflect and think, Ah, but the things that mathematics seems to be telling me about are things that I've never seen, things that I can't investigate in the laboratory, things that I can't touch or bump into. So how do I know they're really there? How do I know the mathematics I learned in school is true? And some philosophers regard that as an opportunity to second guess the deliverances of ordinary mathematics, to step in and say, ah, maybe philosophy or philosophical reflection can show us that The existence claims that seem to be built into mathematics are, in fact, mistakes, and that mathematics is some sort of fiction or some sort of construction that we shouldn't take fully seriously. That's a real challenge to our ordinary starting point, it seems to me. And then my impulse was to say, ah, the challenge is based on bad rhetoric. There's no good reason internal to philosophy not to acquiesce in the starting point that you found yourself with when you... uh, finished sixth grade. All the math you learned then is true. All the mathematical arguments for the things that you learned are good arguments. The mathematical knowledge you have is real mathematical knowledge. The challenge is based on a picture of what knowledge has to be, according to which knowledge has to be empirical, testable, and so on. That picture is mistaken, but the mistake there is not in our starting point. It's in the philosophy that might lead us to wonder about our starting point.
1: Well, I think that leads fairly naturally into a second question I wanted to ask you, which is whether you really believe your philosophical views. And it sounded like in that case, if the philosophical view is there are numbers between two and five, for instance, <laughs> you probably do believe it. But does that is that true? And does that generalize to other kinds of philosophical commitments you have?
0: I'd say that's something I believe, but I would, I'd call it barely a philosophical view. Um, so I believe the things that I always believed and would believe independently of philosophy when philosophy goes beyond the obvious when philosophy seems to be telling you things that supplement common sense and the science that is more or less a development of common sense i do have philosophical views that tend to do that i have some views in esoteric metaphysics that go way beyond uh two plus two equals four and I do think that when it comes to that part of the philosophy that I do, where I'm defending controversial metaphysical principles, in those cases, I don't think I believe the philosophy I accept. I find myself saying certain things. I find myself attracted to certain views. I find certain arguments more persuasive than others. I find myself with certain intuitions about how abstract questions should be settled. But when I ask what all of those inclinations and impulses and in- intuitions do for me, I think they just lead me to a kind of um, very soft acceptance. I wouldn't bet $100 on the truth of my abstract philosophical views. I wouldn't rely on them if this were possible in any context where the stakes were high and I was making a big decision about how to live. In any of those contexts, I would treat my philosophical views as so completely conjectural as to be worth almost nothing.
1: So having talked about your relative intellectual placidity and sort of epistemic (laughs) modesty, here's a question. This is number three. Who was your most inspiring teacher?
0: I was a graduate student at Princeton in the 1980s, which was a sort of... um, miraculous period, when you think about it, for um, accumulating philosophical intelligence and talent and creativity in one place. So I had half a dozen teachers who were sort of objectively inspirational. So when I was a student at Princeton, the faculty included David Lewis, Saul Kripke, van Frossen, Gil Harmon, John Burgess, Mark Johnston, and many others, all of whom were sort of very distinctive but extremely powerful philosophical intelligences. That is, people who had complicated views on lots of topics and could speak with charismatic authority that you rarely see in academic philosophy, but those guys all had it or had it in spades. They were all, in that sense, people one could be powerfully inspired by. And I was in some sense, definitely. But the thing about those guys, all of the guys that I just mentioned was, they did philosophy in a way that I didn't think that I could emulate. They made it seem too easy. They were all figures for whom philosophy just seemed to pour out in a way that was clear-headed interesting, non-trivial, and defensible. Defensible by arguments they had in their pockets all the time. They never seemed, even in sort of ordinary conversation, much less in their writings, they never seemed to fumble, they never seemed to screw up, and they never seemed to chase down blind alleys because they hadn't approached the problem in the right way. They were sort of um, too good to be inspiration for me. Um, Too good in that respect. So the philosopher who I clicked with when I was a graduate student, more than those figures was Paul Badasraf, who was my dissertation advisor, uh, who had a very different sort of mind. Paul is a philosopher of mathematics. He had written two absolutely landmark agenda-setting papers in the philosophy of mathematics early in his career, both of which are problem papers. They don't defend a view. They show that existing views are subject to problems that uh, hadn't been fully appreciated. And they both generated massive academic literatures attempting to resolve these problems, but Van himself was not a system builder or a problem solver. And he was someone who, in his writing, but especially in person, made it clear that he found philosophy hard. He did it and did it at an extremely high level and seemed to take some satisfaction in doing it. But he found it himself, um, as far as I could tell, um, defeated by the difficulty of the issues he was focused on. And that's, that's certainly how I felt then and how I still often feel. Um, and I really appreciated the model of someone who could be a philosopher, organize his life around philosophy without thinking that he, hit the kind of groove where you think of yourself from day to day as making progress on this subject that you've taken an interest in. The subject um, was inimical for him and also for me most of the time to that kind of steady progress. And the picture of a philosopher who was an absolutely brilliant teacher an absolutely brilliant interlocutor and an absolutely brilliant writer of philosophy who found philosophy um, daunting in that way I find that, found that the kind of model that made it possible for me with my mind and my sense of my own sort of abilities relative to the subject matter to go on doing philosophy, if it had all been David Lewis, uh, it would have been impossible for me to think my way into the the life of a philosopher.
1: That's really lovely. That It's great to talk about Paul. Actually, he was, um, well, I was in graduate school at Princeton about a decade after you, and Paul, who worked on topics and questions very distant from what I was working on, was incredibly kind to me at some of the most difficult, lowest points of graduate school. And he really was, for me, inspiring. I'm not sure if quite inspiring because I didn't... Our, our interests were sufficiently far apart, but definitely sustaining and enabling as a teacher in a way that I really appreciate. That's wonderful.
0: Yeah, can I just say one more thing? There's something about Paul's... Um species of kindness that um, I want to mention because I sometimes try to emulate it and really haven't managed. So Paul uh, is a real human being. He understands how difficult life as a student can be, and he can be very empathetic. um, And he knows what to say to cheer a person up, but he won't say it just to cheer a person up. He managed to combine incredibly high intellectual standards with this compassion. Um, I have my old unit reports, which were the prose reports that professors used to write on student work. And my unit reports from Paul are filled with genuinely blunt criticism. Yeah. I gave an oral presentation in one of his seminars once, and I had been sort of crestfallen afterwards because it went um, sort of badly. And in the unit report where Paul wrote all of this up, he says, um, Rosen gave a presentation in the seminar and he thought it went badly. It did.
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh.
0: And then there were nice things too. But um, the the capacity to uh, be kind without being uh, uncritical, very important skill if you can manage it, especially for a teacher of graduate students. And uh, Paul was quite brilliant at that.
1: Yeah, very difficult. Yeah. So I'm going to move on to question four, which is potentially lighter, at least a little bit more random than the ones I've asked so far. It's this, when a stranger asks you what you do for a living, how do you reply?
0: depends very much on the stranger and how much of a conversation I want to have. Um, I always say um, I teach philosophy. Um, I'm one of those people for whom, you know, I'm a philosopher. Just sounds like a funny thing to say. So I always say I teach philosophy. Um, Then they ask, sometimes they ask, what do you teach? And I have answers to that. Very often they ask, who's your favorite philosopher? Thinking that you know, philosophy is a matter of sort of hitching your star to one of some small number of great figures from the, the tradition and doing philosophy in that style. And that's a question I, I reject. You know, I'll, I'll tell them I don't have favorites. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not a sort of philosophy fan. Um, they're philosophers whose work I admire, but um, I'm not the sort of uh, guy who keeps lists of favorite great philosophers and cleaves pretty closely to those. I, when they ask me, what do you teach? I'll say and this is the best sort of conversation to have my main thing is that i teach introductory philosophy um i teach an intro to metaphysics and epistemology which is just a does god exist do we have free will what is it for a person to uh persist over time sort of problems of philosophy class and that's the one course i teach on on a regular basis i teach it almost every year and the thing is when you're talking to a stranger if you say that it's an invitation for them to ask the questions that a freshman in an introductory philosophy class would want to ask. And those are things that are fun to discuss with a stranger.
1: Do you ever get the follow-up, what's your philosophy, when you say that you teach philosophy? Or, or does saying I teach philosophy rather than I'm a philosopher help to to deter that follow-up? You know, I guess it does, because I don't get that very often. I do get people who, as soon as I say the word
0: metaphysics, as part of my story uh-huh. about the kinds of things I teach, people who want to talk about uh, um the occult or consciousness or something. They read about quantum mechanics on the internet. And uh, that's less fun than talking about the things that really do come up in my sort of intro classes in philosophy.
1: So we are almost out of time. So we're going to move on to question five, another Iris Murdoch question. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote, what is he afraid of? So Gideon, what are you afraid of?
0: I found myself wishing, as I was thinking about this question, wishing for the first time that I had one of these sort of simple quirky phobias, if I were afraid of snakes or afraid of spiders or something like that, then that would be the answer. And that would be fun to talk about. But getting that sort of answer is absolutely not revealing of anything else. Since I don't have any of these quirky fears, any answer I could give to this question is going to be... um, revealing in ways that I'm leery of, it's a great question to ask because if you got an an honest answer, it would really tell you something psychologically deep about the person. So here's my best shot at an honest answer. The thing that I most fear is blame, moral blame. I have a kind of horror of not just sort of screwing up and doing something that's bad for other people or that I shouldn't have done. I've got a bit of that. But when you screw up and doing, do something you should, shouldn't should have done, something that treats other people badly, and they recognize this and respond with the kind of um, anger or hostility or frostiness that makes it clear to you that they're really holding it against you, that you've done this thing to them, the feeling they have before things have renormalized and they've gotten around to forgiving you or forgetting about what happened, that feeling in the middle where... Uh, they're clearly holding it against you, I find absolutely horrible and especially horrible when I know I deserve it. When you know, it's one thing to be blamed when you've got some sort of excuse, then you can start telling stories about why you understand how they blame you, but uh, you don't really deserve it. But in the case where you've got no story to tell, um, you know that the blame is fully deserved, and you feel guilt in response to recognition of this blame, that constellation is, um, for me, psychologically, about as bad as anything can be. So that is what I most fear. And I should say that I do think that a fair amount of my philosophy is a kind of defensive response to the prospect of that kind of deserved blame, because I spent a lot of time arguing, uh, in ways that I sometimes find persuasive, that, As a matter of fact, an awful lot of the blame we go in for is misplaced. The people have excuses that we don't often recognize and that if we think hard enough about it, it can be extremely hard to tell in any given case whether the person you've got in front of you really is at fault for the crummy thing he or she has just done. That intellectual structure, where I'm very interested in the question, when are we blameworthy? What are the excuses? Why are the excuses good excuses? Can we really know in real cases whether people are blameworthy for what they do? That philosophy interests me and it interests me in part because it's erected around this thing over which I have a real abject and elemental horror.
1: That's interesting. Do you think if this, if you really believed the skeptical conclusions about moral responsibility, about culpability that you've argued for, at least presented arguments for in your work, that would answer or sort of resolve this kind of fear? Or would the fear remain because people would continue to blame you and it would be cold comfort even if you did believe that they were unjustified?
0: So what I've argued for is that an awful lot of the bad we do, an awful lot of the harm we cause, we do as a result of a kind of ignorance. We fail to appreciate as we're acting exactly what it is that we're doing and exactly why we shouldn't be doing it. That failure to appreciate in the moment of action under the right circumstances can in fact be an excuse for wrongdoing. It's true to say of the person that it's not his fault because he really didn't understand what he was doing as he was doing it. I think that that excuse applies for all we know quite broadly in human action. And that means that a lot of the blame we go in for is in a certain sense unwarranted. Is that comforting? I don't think so. Because it's not a way for me to think with any confidence, the blame that I'm on the receiving end of is undeserved. For all I know, it is deserved. It may be that the person who's blaming me isn't fully entitled to his confidence in the moment. But that doesn't get me off the hook. And what bugs me, I think, is not just the positive belief that I'm at fault for the wrong. Even the concrete suspicion that I'm at serious fault for the wrong and the blame I'm getting is deserved blame, that's enough to sort of lead to the sort of grim, sinking feeling that really bothers me. So I don't think this skepticism that I have is targeted in the right place to provide a real antidote or real immunity from the uh, kind of blame that really bothers me.
1: Well, thanks so much, Gideon, for coming on the podcast and talking so frankly about your fears and your philosophical inspirations and attitudes. It's been really great to have you.
0: Well, thank you, Kieran. Yeah, I feel like I've gotten a lot off my chest. Um, I appreciate the opportunity.
1: (laughs) That's good. Well, the podcast has served at least one of its purposes. So that's good. And uh, that was Gideon Rosen. He's a professor of philosophy at Princeton University. And this is Five Questions.